0: Welcome to the MotorMouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. In another of our new Gearing Up episodes, we were honoured to be joined by Willie T. Ribbs, the first African-American racing driver to test a Formula One car and compete in the Indy 500. But throughout his career, faced roadblocks amplified because of the colour of his skin. We chat to Willie about his career, his new Netflix documentary, Uppity, his thoughts on new championships like Formula E, as well as modern-day issues around race, including the tragic death of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement, and what motorsport is doing to combat its racial divide. A quick warning to you, we do discuss controversial figures such as boxing promoter Don King as well as characters like Bill Cosby. The Willie T-Rib story is an incredible one and well, I'll shut up now and let you listen to his own words. But once again thank you so much to you guys who continue to download and listen. If you like it, please do leave us a review. It really helps us to get bigger and enjoy.
1: Welcome to the second episode of our new Gearing Up series where we chat with unsung heroes or people we feel you need to be aware of and who should get your attention our regular series continues and you can go ahead and listen to our interviews with the likes of David Coulthard Crofty Sebastian Bueni Brendan Harley. Broon Chandlock, Mark Blundell, and many more. First up on Gearing Up, we had Todd McCandless, the biggest F1 podcaster you've probably never heard of, but certainly should. On this show, we've got someone you probably have heard of, but before we introduce him, I have to head east to Essex, home of the second longest coastline of any English county and also England's smallest town, Manningtree. However, Essex is best known for being home to the
0: illustrious co-host, Harry Benjamin. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Tim. Thank you again. For the lovely introduction, I feel like you might have used up all your Essex facts, and I think you're yeah. reusing some now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm doing all right. Back in the uh, back in the cupboard in the recording cupboard uh, in my loft, but uh, doing all right. Um, but you know, you have we got a baby yet? No
1: not? baby yet. I'm still waiting. No um, um, we keep organising these podcasts and recordings at different times. This one in the UK where we are now, it's about eight o'clock in the evening. We've got some more booked in for Wednesday, and due date is is what day is it today? Thursday. Due date is tomorrow. Yeah. The baby's due tomorrow. So, oh. um, or is it Saturday? It's either tomorrow or Saturday, I'm not sure. So any time from now could, could be a disaster. <laughs> but anyway, we'll plough on and deal with that situation when it comes. Um, Shall I introduce today's guest? Absolutely, let's do it. So, ladies and gents, Willie T. Ribbs is a former American racing driver. He was the first African-American to test a Formula 1 car and made history when he successfully navigated the month of May to reach one of the most important races in the world, the Indy 500, on a shoestring budget. The Defiant star dominated series, including Trans Am, IMSA, and others, and has even competed in the UK, where he showed pace that surpassed drivers who went on to not only compete in, but win in Formula 1. It's our pleasure to have him dialling in all the way from the USA. Willie,
0: welcome to the Motormouth Podcast. What's going
2: on, players?
0: <laughs> Willie, absolute pleasure and honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you for uh, agreeing to come on. Um, now, I know we chatted a little bit just off there now, but tell us what lockdown life is like where you are. You're in Texas, aren't you?
2: Yeah, but I'm, you know, Texas is a big state, and uh, I live out in the country and I like being out in the country and uh there there's uh, we don't have to wear a mask we don't have to wear clothes out here (laughs) i walk to the i walk to the mailbox buck naked and and the squirrels and the deer you know are
1: those lucky squirrels (laughs) one with
0: nature (laughs) yeah
2: oh yeah
1: that's nice so you're you're not a you're not a city boy then you prefer being out in the sticks
2: oh yeah i I grew up in uh on my grandfather's ranch and uh you know once my racing career came to uh, a slowdown uh, I'm back on it again
0: yeah very nice too amazing now of course uh, we've all seen your documentary that's out on Netflix in the UK and across across the globe as well Uppity. Um, let's let's talk about that to begin with uh, we can see you there with the uh, the Uppety cap on as well doing the and uh, making sure the promo is going getting spot on um, <laughs> first of all brilliant documentary if yeah. anybody who's listening to this hasn't seen it Go and watch it immediately. It is brilliant, emotional, and it, you know, even if you're not into racing, the story is incredible. How was it for you when, you know, when did they come to you with this idea? or Was it your idea? How did it all come about?
2: The producer, Adam Carolla, he had initially did a film on Paul Newman. It was called The Racing Life of Paul Newman, and this was five years ago. And uh, he interviewed me. Uh, they came to the ranch, they interviewed me about my relationship with Newman. He was very important in my career, almost, uh, one of the most important. And, Mm -hmm. uh, after the film was done, he called me back and he says, I'm getting a lot of response to your interviews. And we wouldn't like to do a story on you. I said on one condition that, um, we don't pull any punches. I said, there's going to be, uh, it's going to be the good, the bad, and the ugly. There's going to be some people that are butt hurt. But as my grandpa used to say, that's why you got a butt. Go get it hurt
0: sometime. <laughs> yeah, I think you do. It does an amazing job as well at telling your story. Cause I suppose, was there always a bit of a fear that, it, you know, it might not, uh, do, uh, might not convey what you wanted to. You were pretty happy with the outcome of it all.
2: Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I, and, and I'm going to tell you, when I went to the editing room, when it was done, it was done right before um, Adam Carolla's Christmas party. And uh, my wife and I flew down to L.A., to Hollywood. He took us, you know, and they had this party at his studio. So he took us into his screening room And he says, I'm going to put you two in here. Here's the couch. I'm closing the door. No one's coming in. And when it was done, I and I, and I was prepared to be disappointed. I was. And when I, when it was over, my wife, people thought my wife and I had an argument because she came out of the room crying. And, uh, and, and she was, it was, uh, it was, it was hard to imagine that they could, Create Cause there was material in there that I didn't know existed wow. and how they put the narratives together, the, the storyline, uh, and the interviews, including the King himself, Bernie Ecclestone. Um, it, you know, it, it was just brilliant. Yeah. You know?
1: Great. And there was some. It's a very highly charged and an emotional show. It must have been, in a way, I guess, therapeutic for you to talk it through like that in such depth. And there are moments in the documentary where you do get emotional, and and um, you know there are people close to you that you've lost over the years, and and that that feeling of of loss comes across really well. What was it like reliving
2: all this stuff and going back over your memories? You, you know, you'd be surprised um how much you can remember without being waterboarded. Um, you know, uh it, it all starts to come back. And, you know, with, with some visuals which I had in front of me to be able to tell the story, to recollect. Uh and it was the good, the bad and the ugly. I mean it was that was the film. And I um uh you know the the emotional parts you know, they, they, it was almost opening up uh, a little wound Yeah, mm-hmm. that was there.
1: Yeah. And and how's the response been from those that have featured in the documentary? Have you heard from people that you haven't heard from for many years with their thoughts of support or, or negative responses even?
2: Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's been, the response worldwide has been phenomenal. And The individuals that were in it, they told a story and they had the, they had the Kejones, you know, I don't know what that means, what they, how they interpret that in, in England. Yeah, that works. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They told it like it was and, and they didn't bite their lip. And that's what gave impact Mm. uh, to it. Uh, they knew what was going on and they told it like it was and they were happy.
0: Amazing. Well, it, it, it really is a brilliant documentary. I'm sure we will come back in and talk about it throughout uh, the show, but let's, let's talk about, um, the very beginning for you and, you know, growing up and, and that passion for racing cars. When did that first happen? You know, when, when did the racing bug bite you and you go, Yep, yeah, I know I want to be a, a motor racing driver.
2: Well, I mean, I was going to the races with my dad at three years old because my dad was actually racing uh, when I was born. He had started on motorcycles, he was racing dirt track. And his buddy, who he grew up with by the name of Joe Leonard, was a national motorcycle champion. But well, then eventually, Joe Leonard went on to race cars. And then my dad was getting on in age, you know, but, you know, after you're about 25, Twenty-six years old. It's time to get off those two wheels and get on four, right? Because <laughs> yeah, the, the rash—you know—all that rash, all over your know, uh, wow. Yeah, it's so, so not pleasant. <laughs> yeah, so he uh, went on to cars, and and I was traveling to the races with him at a very early age. And I knew at nine years old what my goal was. I knew this is what I want to do. I didn't want to work in the family business because I had an option. I mean, I didn't have to go to school. I mean, I could have just quit school and worked in the family business. I didn't want to do that. I mean, especially working for my dad. I know I could work for my grandpa, but I couldn't work for him, my dad. And um, so, I um, got my racing license, you know, when I got out of high school, and I headed for England. And I knew, and I and I followed uh, all the uh, my my dad's friends were all race drivers, mm. which included Dan Gurney and Phil Hill. He knew uh, all the drivers that were legends at that time. So, my career path mainly, I came to England because Emerson Fittipaldi did. I knew that he left Brazil for a reason, and I read his story. He came to England because he wanted to be in Formula One, and that was the reason. Uh, I wanted to go to England, and, and, and when, yeah, when Formula One.
1: When you came over to our shores and um, you're still relatively young at this stage, what was going through your head? Was it, did it feel like a massive move? When, where did you live? What did you do? How did you, you know, make money? Did, did you get immersed in the, in, the, in the culture here? What was it like?
2: It was like going to another planet. I mean, I tell people, when I left the United States, I'd never been to England. I lived in Harold Wood, ex Essex. That was hey. Harry's part of the world, yeah. Right. It was uh, sort of a spinoff from Harold Hill. It was like a <laughs> suburb of a place called Harold Hill. And Harold Wood was a really nice place. It was close to the uh, train station there, so I could go in and out of London. And I was learning my way around uh Harold Wood and uh and after a while you know the neighborhood knew there was uh a Yank in town <laughs> and he was colored he was <laughs> colored and so so you know I used to uh go to a pub called Spencer's Arms there which was walking distance from my it was I lived in a one room flat one room that's all I had the money for. And my parents were sending me money to race for uh, a, 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 a team called Scorpion Racing. And it was owned by a gentleman named Mike Eastick. And Scorpion brought a lot of drivers along. I mean, they, they were quite well known uh, for bringing up drivers. And um, I went out to his farm near Snedderton. That's where his farm was near. And uh I told him I wanted to drive uh, rent his race car. And when I first got to his ranch, um he thought I was there to work on the farm. And I said, Well, you know, I'm not I'm not a farm worker. I I came here to drive cars. And so he put me in a test and we did a test at Snedderton, and then first race was Mallory Park. I finished third, the second race was Snetterton and I won, and I knew right then uh, I I think I could get the job done.
1: Yeah, because it, it's the, the, the UK scene at F four F three level is still hugely competitive. If you can win at that level in the UK, you know you've got something. Have you been back to Snetterton and those tracks since? Have you have you come back over here?
2: I'm there every other year. Great uh, in England. And the reason I'm there is my son, Theo, is one of the top clay shooters in the world. So he comes to uh, High Wycombe every year uh, and competes at E.J. Churchill uh, Shooting Grounds. And um, I found out when I, you know, and I I know everyone at E.J. Churchill, found out that Bernie Ecclestone's wife shoots there. (laughs) Bernie's wife is a clay shooter. She shoots at E.J. Churchill. Ross Braun, who's a good friend of mine, shoots at E.J. Churchill. So, uh, yeah, I'm in England. And it's great because I get to come back and see uh, Akram Sami, who uh, has been at McLaren. McLaren, Akram Sami was my partying buddy when I lived in England. This was nineteen seventy-seven,
1: wow, That's so cool. Yeah. So Ekram is—he's uh, a legend on the the commercial side of motorsport. I mean, you know, he's—he's he's up there. He's as good as it gets.
2: Oh yeah, no, we were, and we were both young then, and even then, Sami was—I mean, he could—he could sell ice to Eskimos. I mean, he—he—he he, he, he just had that look, and still does. Yeah. He still does. Uh, he could do his own. He could do his own talk show. <laughs> yeah.
1: God, that's amazing. I didn't realize you came over so much. That's brilliant. Well, that's good news because we must meet up and we can take you for a beer down our local pub. We'll take you back to Essex.
0: <laughs> back to Essex. Oh yeah, bro.
2: no, I love. I'd love to get back and and go to the pub again and walk in there. I mean, I I had two or three fist fights in there when I was. <laughs> <laughs> when I, when I lived there, hey, they thought I was Jamaican.
1: Yeah, but you're you're.
2: I in there yeah, but, yeah. I walked in there one day at a this <laughs> party, and then
1: why? Well, hey, we're we'll all going to India. Yeah, but Willie, you're you're Funny. quite you're quite handy with your fists, aren't you? You you oh, can yeah.
2: you can hold your own. Funny, you know. And and I said, what the hell is that? <laughs> then, then, so the guy told me. I said, well we use the n word back in the United States. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's got me on boxing now. This is this is game over. Um do, do you follow the the heavyweight boxing scene now?
2: A little bit. You know, I I got a lot of friends in the industry. Uh you know, Ali was my mentor yeah. and everyone the whole world knows about my Muhammad Ali and my relationship and, and you know, me going to Brixton with him one day. And um And Ray Leonard and I are very good friends, Sugar Ray. Yeah. Mike Tyson, Mike Mike took me to a party one night in Cleveland. That was crazy. So, I mean, the boxing stories, and I trained with Leonard. I trained with Larry Holmes. I trained with Ray Mercer, John the Beast Mugabe. and, And they were all like, they were all like, teach us how to drive our fast cars and, and we'll teach you some boxing. It's so
0: cool. Did Muhammad Ali, what, what's, you know, he must have given you so many, uh, he must have said so many things. Was he, was he there giving you advice as well? Is there anything that stuck with you over the years?
2: No, more, just, you know, you've you got to be, be a man. You, don't, don't ever let him see you cry. He, he was very hard about. Be it not showing weakness, and that was that was invaluable. He yeah. said because you know he knew what the oppositions I was going to deal with. He knew it. He came from Louisville, Kentucky. That's the Confederacy down
1: there. Yeah, yeah. And you adopted his uh, his his shuffle, of course. When you uh, uh, you'd get your victory, go on top of your car him. and do the Ali shuffle.
2: Well, I want to see. I want to see Lewis do it. I know that Formula One nose is a little narrow, but I want to see Lewis. You know, he gets <laughs> up on it. the car, right? All right, but I, I want you to, uh, you know, uh, get them uh, shoes uh, so they'll slide easy on that nose.
0: <laughs> it's a bit dangerous. There's not. There's not enough. Uh, sir, there's not as much surface area to do that on
2: one false move, and he's off. Oh yeah, no, no. You better be good, Frank Sinatra. <laughs>
1: oh dear who were you uh competing against in the uk what, what were some of the
2: names that you were you were racing against and beating i raced formula four okay in the formula four championship now that's where nigel mansell and i in my fourth race i think it was the race that bernie ecclestone and gordon murray came they actually came to see me oh right They came out i was stunned and they walked i was i was walking down the pit lane and they walked up to me and they said, um, uh, I'm Bernie. I said, "I, yes, sir, I know Mr. Eccleston who you are and I knew Gordon. And so they said to me, um, we've been watching you and uh, and keep up the good work. And I just thought, that's it. I, I My reasoning, reasoning for coming to England was just answered, right? And that same race, Nigel was there racing. Well, I didn't meet Nigel Mansell until we were on the lorry, going around the racetrack uh, with the victory uh, race on our neck. The race was over. Uh, Michael Rowe won it from Ireland. I was second. Nigel was third. And we got up on the podium. We shook hands. And then we got down, walked down the steps. This was a brand's hatch. We got in the lorry on the back of it where you could stand up and go around the track and wave to the crowd, like the queen, you know, how you move your hand like that. Yeah. So I didn't know how to do that. Right. I, I you know, I was just, you know, I, just you, <laughs> right? well, you know, then I'm watching the, you know, Nigel, you know, he could do it pretty damn good. Right. You know, so, um, um, on that lorry is where Nigel and I formally introduced ourselves and started talking. And that, that um, I remember like it was yesterday. And and Mansell then as now was a bad cat. <laughs> oh, he, he was a bad cat. I mean, we, him and I went at it. Right. And uh, we both could see each other's numbers a lot. 'Cause that's how sideways we were. I mean, we were going to we were going to the first corner. I forget the name of that corner. Uh it ran's hatch. Yeah. You go over the hill. Down to the right. We could look yeah, we could look at each look to the side and see each other's numbers. That's how cross we were.
0: So so what were your, your next steps? You're you're racing in Formula Ford, you're you know, you're beating the likes of Nigel Mansell, you've got Bernie Eccleston saying hi we can see you, we like what we're seeing, keep it up. What are you thinking, and um, um, what's what's next? What happens next? Because you only got so far in the UK before having to co- go back to America.
2: I ran out of money. And my parents, you know, were were paying the bills. And um, they said, well, you know, we got, uh, you got some sisters and brothers we got to put through college. And so, you know, they they are watching how much money we're giving you. So you you're gonna have to let home. Happy. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna have to come home. You know, I know you I know you think you're the golden boy, uh, but uh, you're gonna have to uh, saddle up that horse and get back to uh, the United States. Mm. So uh I came home and I uh got uh an opportunity to do some open formal Atlantic races in the United States in the early eighties. It was actually, my first race was 1978. And then I went back to Long Beach in 1982. And uh, 82, when I qualified on the pole, there uh, was a big deal. That's when, uh, you know, and there was some great drivers in that race. Jeff Brabham, Jeff Brabham, Alan Sir Junior, Roberto Moreno, Michael Andretti. There were some real young, uh, tough caps and um didn't write it I, I was leading the race and we had an engine failure but <clears throat> the message was sent and then i got a phone call from paul newman later on that year to to put me in a trans am car and which made me a paid race driver.
1: And that that transition from single seat to single formula, uh, sorry, single seater cars into these huge Trans Am cars, big, bad cars, big tires, very powerful. How did you cope with that transition? Did it just come to you? The best
2: parallel I can use it, it was it's like dancing with a woman, a slow dance, right? Who, uh, who's like Twiggy, and then dancing with, with you know uh, Oprah. Oh, yeah, yeah, bigger, right? Bigger, More full. Yeah, because she's yeah, not she's not that big
1: guy. anymore. So you you've got to go kind of on uh, who's yeah.
2: you know someone
1: yeah. someone
2: Ro- sturdier. Roseanne you. Barr, Roseanne Barr. You know, there you go. I mean, some we got some girth
1: there. Yeah, girth. That, that's the word. We've
2: got some girth. <laughs> well, you know with that's the woman, you know, Twiggy. I mean, you can move her around real easy.
0: Yeah, nimble.
2: Uh,
0: big girl. You know, I, never thought, I never thought we'd ever get Twiggy and Oprah in the same sentence on this podcast. It works. It, I never it, thought that would ever come up. It like, works. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, yeah. yeah. No,
2: it, you're just a different, a different way you deal with the car. Mm. Uh, that's, that's all. But, you know, you, I've seen great drivers, over the years and Mario Andretti is one of them. Bobby Unser is another one. Mm. Uh, 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 Jim Clark. Those guys could jump into any car and go fast whether it was on the dirt, whether it was a stock car, whether it was a Formula One it was an Indy car. Their versatility was was what I wanted to be able to do. and uh, And it didn't take long for me to adapt to a car that was uh, over twice as heavy as an open car big old beasts yeah,
1: big old beasts mm-hmm. and you were up against David Hobbs at this stage mm-hmm. and that was quite a how do we put it tasty relationship that you had
2: together <laughs> good old David I mean he I, I, I sort of feel for him because if, you know he was told he was going to be the uh, big man on campus right he was lead, lead sled dog. Well, you know what they say about sled dogs. You know, everything behind that lead sled dog, they all look the same, right? So, right. Uh, so uh, I, I wasn't prepared to be number two, and I was fast, and I was faster than David. And I do not think David expected that, nor the team. And uh, especially me transitioning from a formal Atlantic car, which is rear engine and less than a thousand pounds, to a front engine car with big tires that had uh, seven hundred horsepower that weighed twenty eight hundred pounds. They didn't expect that.
0: And and why then? Was that favoritism there? Was it because of the color of your skin you were not favored?
2: No, I wouldn't say that as much as Hobbs' name. Right. You know, Hobbs was a renowned race driver, right? From Formula One, from uh, sports car. I mean, he had a big name and they were hiring him for his big name. Mm. And, uh, and I was to be uh, the junior... You know, I was to be the new kid, who was going to be groomed. Well, actually, I was doing the grooming. Yeah. yeah right. And that that was that was hard. That was some uh, that was some tough steak and kidney to swallow. <laughs> and you got rookie of the year, right, that year? Yeah. yeah. I did. In fact, I won more races. He won four races, and I won five. I just happened to have some mechanical failures.
1: Yeah, you, you, you see, you've had some bad luck with engines, I think it's fair to say, and we'll come on to that more later with your, your Indy 500 exploits. Uh, so just skipping forward a little bit, 1984-ish, you move across to uh, Corvette. Tell us a bit about that period, um, and, um, and I think we're creeping towards the time that you met a, a certain Don King.
2: Well, in 84, uh, I raised for Dyatly in uh, 1983, was Rookie of the Year in Trans Am. Budweiser uh, Camaros at the end of the year uh, after Las Vegas, we sat down the next day. They said Chevrolet wants us to go to Corvette you? and we're going to the Corvette uh, uh, platform and it's going to be different. geometry is going to be different all this. And so I said, no problem. And I said, am I going to be number two to Hobbs? They said, no. I said, okay, a uh, level playing field, right? Right. All right. So we go to the first race. Um, I think I had qualified on the front row. I was a second, and there was a guy I got into altercation with. I think he might have been on the pole. Hobbs was, I think, third. Anyway, in warm up, Sunday morning warm up, I come out of the pits and As I come out of the pits, the guy I had an altercation with, who was on the pole, goes by me, right, and disappears. Well, halfway around the track, he's going crawl, he's going very slow, like waiting for me slow, right? So we get up and I pull next to him and we get onto the back straight and he drag races me down the back straight at Road Atlanta. And that's a long back straight and you drop downhill into a 180-mile-per-hour dog leg, and he sort of eased me off, right, eased me off into the grass. And uh, so I followed him into the pits, and um, I got out of the car and I ran down to talk with him.
1: To talk with him, to, to talk with talk, him or to, to maybe do something else?
2: I, I, I wanted to hit, tap him on the helmet first. Just so he could get, I could get his attention, and I tapped him. You know, I gave him a uh, head slap, and um, when I got back to my pit, my uh, the the team manager who did not like me uh, fired me right then and there. Right then, I I oh. uh, as I was talking to him, they were covering my car up he says you're gone. So, and I knew they wanted to get rid of me. So this I, was I, the excuse. Yeah, that that was their out. A rumor was put out that I intentionally got fired. That uh so Ford could hire me. That I I set the whole thing up. Me and Ford. Right, it was a conspiracy. Yeah, uh, um, Yeah, oh I and I was getting calls from the media. Worded, wow. Word is word has it that you uh, uh got intentionally fired so ford could hire you and and a deal was already done before the first punch
0: <laughs> <laughs> well done you <laughs> oh. <laughs> so so you you've got this uh, you know you're with the ford you're with ford it and it's it's going great and that kind of thing let's let's talk about we've touched on briefly don king He's uh, you know absolute legend, of course. For people who are somehow not familiar, of course, a massive promoter in in the, in the boxing world. Um, talk about your. Let's talk about how that relationship started, and and I suppose the the early beginnings of the road to the Indy five hundred.
2: Well, uh, and I'll get into this. The amazing story, the the meeting between Don King and Bernie Ecclestone, was a movie. Uh, the, it, 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 that was a movie in itself. I get a It was 1980, um, 1984, in mm-hmm. the last race of the year, Caesar's Palace, uh, Las Vegas, and and that race was uh, in conjunction with, I think, IndyCar at the time. Formula One had just left because mm-hmm. Formula One had been there prior. Yeah. So uh, the race is over. I get out of the car. Well, there's not many black guys running around the pits, right, not in a suit, right? So I, I'm, I'm pulling off my helmet and I'm talking to the team and as I'm walking away back to my pit, this guy comes up to me and he says, hi, my name is so-and-so and I work for Don King and he would like to meet you. I said, when? Tonight. Okay. So he's, at the, <laughs> he's, at, he's at the Riviera, and and he would like you to, he had a fight going on, it was Bone Crusher Smith and uh, Larry Holmes, I think it was, and um, so I said, uh, I'll be there. He said, come to his office, he'd like to see his office at, at about six o'clock, so I went back to my room, got changed, went into the office, and I walked into his office, and he's rocking back on the chair like this, right? With that, and his hair was up in the air. And he had a cigar, and he was smoking a cigar. And he had, you know, his all his, uh, you know, colleagues around him, and under, and you know, ushers. And I walk in. He, Willie D. That's how I talk. Willie D. Willie D. Sit <laughs> <Stay> down. <laughs> the Muhammad Ali racing, And so he went right into it. And he said he wanted to, um, he wanted to represent me. And he says, I'd like, he, said, he said, what do you want to do? And so I told him I wanted to be uh, F1. I wanted to be in Formula One, and if not Indy 500. So we, he said, great. I spent maybe <clears throat> half an hour with him. He said, "Here's a ticket to the fight." He said, "You got a girlfriend with you?" I said, "Well, my my wife's here." He says, "Well, um, here's two tickets to the fight." So I did that, and then went to the fight, and went to the after party, and all that, and then uh, we started getting in contract with each other, and that was that was the craziest. That was the craziest. Um, contract negotiation ever, ever. Mm. It was, it was, I see how he could get people, to fighters to sign. Cause most of these guys were so, he couldn't read, you know, and uh, that's not their fault. You know, they were fighters, you know, they started fighting. Over, they didn't understand anything. Well, I did. I come from a family, a business family. So, you know, after we, you know, went back and forth for uh, months, nearly almost two months, we finally got the contract looking pretty decent. And uh, you know, we um we we got it signed. And uh but his lawyer was dead set against it. His lawyer did not like because it Don ended up saying we went back and forth so many times. Don said, okay, you guys put uh write the contract the way you want to write. And so we wrote it. It was fair and and uh, Don's lawyer looked at this and went to a certain page. He went to a particular page. He said, Fuck these niggers, Don. And I thought, and he threw the contract on the floor. And my attorney is very pale and very redheaded. So I looked over at him and I said, You ever been called a nigger? <laughs> <laughs> that went down well yeah <laughs> and, and so he, he was like red faced right yeah. and and um so anyway we got through we 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 i, I said to don i said don i said look uh, this is it i'm gonna sign it this contract we're not gonna go you know we we've done this we've done all the the talking we're gonna do and so he said all right i said well no guts, no glory don I said you got it. I said you got everything to gain, and so we it, and that was it. Yeah, uh, and, so- he went and he did a hell of a job. I mean, he Don could snap his fingers and get money. Yeah, and he was brilliant. I only know one other guy can do that. That's Bernie.
1: It's Bernie. Bernie. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And and Don Don did did the job for you. He he got you essentially to the Indy five hundred, and just skipping ahead to that, um, the. Whether it was too early, not the right time, not the right money, not the right preparation, um, a rushed project, poor relationship with the, the, the team mechanic, a dangerous car. You decided, I can't do this. I'm going to, I'm not going to race. And then the press well, I, really went for it. I,
2: I had gotten, yeah, I, I, I knew, and it wasn't Don's fault. No. Don didn't know. All Don knew how to do was get money, mm-hmm. right? He got the money. And but the the crew chief there uh, was, in my opinion, a card carrying member. And when you say card carrying member in America, that means one thing: KKK. Right? Wow. It's a meta- It's a metaphor. He might yeah. not be with KKK. However, um, I, I, it, he made it clear that I wasn't one, The the driver he wanted, right? Even though he was getting paid to do it, mm. so I.
0: But how, how did that sit with you? Were you just like, right? Oh, I'm here. I'm just going to get on with it, or or how do you deal with something like
2: that? Uh, Indy is a racetrack you do not uh, play games with. Mm. Okay, Indy will kill you, and 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 a lot of drivers have died there. Other uh, Indy, with exception of the Isle of Man, is the most dangerous racetrack on the planet. Isle of Man is numerous. That's
0: yeah, crazy. Mm-hmm okay
2: and uh indy's right behind that uh it's second and you you have to have the right people with you okay maybe you don't die there but you can ruin your career there and so I, i i it wasn't the right group and i was advised to step away from it and i did i did and uh I had no second thoughts about doing it, but you've got to, when you go there, you've got to not only do a lot of testing, which I didn't do, I did no no testing. You've got to have somebody that you can communicate with and who who can, especially with me being a rookie there new, it's a tough place. I mean, there's a lot of drivers that have come there uh, from all over the world and said, this place is, uh, we look at Alonso, for example. Yeah. Okay. Alonso's a example. He's world champion. Now He got in the show the first time. The second time, Alonso, uh, had, it was a rough, it was a rough ride.
1: Yeah. It was, uh, it was probably, with hindsight, I mean, it's the right thing to do with all those things against you. The stars not aligning, you know, walk away fine. And, I don't want to give everything away from the documentary. I want people to go and watch it. So I'm going to skip forward a little bit through 1985, where you've gone back to Trans Am uh, with Wally, who features heavily in the, uh, the documentary and seems like a good all-round guy. Um, and then when the season was over, it was planned that you would test an F1 car uh, and you would go to Portugal uh, again with Bernie, hooking up with Bernie again. Tell us what it was like when you first experienced a Formula One car and how different was it from what you'd driven before?
2: At the end of the year, Don King calls me. This is the middle of the season. This is the Detroit, Detroit Grand Prix 1985. Uh, I get a call from Don. Don says, uh, I want to meet Bernie Ecclestone. I said, okay. I said, he'll be in Detroit. He says, okay, would you, would you uh, ask Bernie if I could meet him? Uh, at his hotel uh, in Detroit. I said, uh, I will. so I called uh, uh, the big man and said, Don King wants to meet you. He says, no problem with him. And so uh, uh, Bernie got over here for the Grand Prix. Don flies in from New York. I'm literally in a driver's suit. I picked Don up at the airport in Detroit in my driver's suit because I'm supposed to be uh, practicing that day, right? So and, and I had a session to do. So I pick him up, we drive back to the hotel in in Detroit at the Renaissance Center. I park the car right out on the curb and tell the valet, you gotta take this car. I said, I don't have time to park it. So we walk into the hotel and as we're walking towards the elevator to go up to Bernie's room, Don stops at an ice cream parlor. (laughs) Okay, now we're on, you know, Bernie's waiting for us, right? Well, we're we're, you know, I'm looking at the watch. Okay, come on, let's. You know, what the hell we're doing, right? So, um, Don gets two scoops of ice cream. Right, he's in a suit and tie. Right, eating this ice cream, and as we get into the elevator, we go up to Bernie's room. We knock on the door, and Bernie answers the door, and Bernie's not Shaquille O'Neal. Ah, okay? no, Bernie's. Yeah. Okay. He's more like a borrower. Don King, Don King is 6'4". So we walk in, and Bernie's looking up at Don, and Don's licking this ice cream, so we go in, and literally the first word, there was no introduction. Bernie says, they haven't even sat down. As Don's walking us down, Bernie says, Don, he says, well, "What kind of money are you making in that boxing business?" It was classic. <laughs> it was classic. And so, Don, Don sort of paused and said, "And says, um, uh, we're, you know, we about this much million. How much are you making?'" And so Bernie says, "Well, I don't know if we're, we're getting that kind of numbers." They went right into talking money. It was just. Uh, it was no how. How, how many kids do you have? Are you married? (laughs) How many dollars you got? You know? Yeah. Right. So they sat down and, and talked about each other's business for a second. And then, uh, Bernie looks at Don and says, Don, what are we going to do with our boy Willie here? And so Don says, well, I want him to race formula one and I'd like him to be a world champion. So Don Bernie says, okay. He says, um, you know, we, we're going to, it's going to take funding for that. And when they got there, I said, okay, I looked at my watch. I had to go get in the race car. I had to go qualify. So I left the room and, 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 and the, and the dialogue was getting heavy. It was getting, you know, I mean, it was Clydesdale, you know, you know what a Clydesdale is, right? It's a big horse, right? Yeah. Wow. yeah. Well, they, it, it was like, they were getting real Wow. serious. So I came back about. Oh, an hour and a half later, they were done with the meeting. I knocked on the door. Bernie shakes Don's hand, walks out. And so we get in the elevator, and it's just me and Don. And Don looked at me, and I've never heard Don say this about any man ever, anybody. So we're going down there, but he says, he says, you're, uh, you're a man, Ecclestones, He's a real smart guy. I never heard Bernie say, uh, Don King say anybody was smarter than himself. He he looked like he went to class. Hmm. That's what Don looked when he came out of that room with Eccleston, it was just and I and and Bernie, you know, he's my uncle. I've always called him Uncle Bernie. Uh, I'll go to I'll go to fist cuffs with anybody for him, and he knows that. And uh. uh uh, and I'm, so, I'm sorry to see he's not running Formula One. I just It just doesn't seem like it, it's got the same magic.
0: Bernie, of course, <laughs> was the man to put you in a Formula One car and you tested that Formula One car. So what was it like to pull out in a pit lane in a Formula One car compared to everything else you'd ever driven before? It must have been so amazing.
2: It was. And um, Herbie Blash and I have been friends forever. I knew Herbie and Herbie was running it, right? Bernie wasn't there, Herbie Blash was there. Charlie Whiting was there. I knew them both. So it was for my Formula Four days. So it was, you know, no, it was no introduction needed in, in, uh, in, that, in that department. Um, before I got in the car, Nelson P.K. comes to me and he said, really, really? So I want to talk to you and it's a Brazilian actor. I want to talk to you. So we, we go around the back of the garage. He says, it's very difficult. Uh, so engine, it's a lot of power. It's no no, uh, no no in between. It's so the on and off. You know, he was being very animated. It was great. He says, it's a four-cylinder, you know. Uh, you know, it's like a, uh, like some women, you know. They're very hot and cold. He says... <laughs> And oh, and te- typical Nelson, right? And so I, he says, just be careful. He says, you may, you know, feel feel it, and and understand the the power. And uh, he says this because he had just went to Williams. He had just left uh, uh, Brabham, uh, and he and and he was going to Williams team uh, with Mansell, I think, and. Um, when I got in the car, I rolled out, and it was, you know, the thing was sort of, you know, it, it, it. One thing I learned that the faster you go with that thing, the smoother it got. You just had, you had to get through that harsh barrier, you know, get those tires warm, and 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 get get the chassis to work, get the aerodynamic side of it, get that thing to set down, right. Mm-hmm. But what I, the hardest thing to adapt to was how well it stopped. Mm -hmm. I could not believe anything could stop like that. And so, yeah, yeah, and and I kept, after my first run, uh, I got out of the car and I went to lunch. Well, I got back and they, Patrese was testing as well. And so was DeAngelis, right? And so I'm watching, I got, drove my road car down to turn one So I had to find out. I said, where do you put the brakes on around here? So I went out on the road car, and I thought, holy shit, these cats are getting right to the corner, literally, and putting on the brakes. So I thought, okay, all right. Well, And so I went around different parts of the track to see what they were doing. So then I started working up to it. And when it was over, um, I went faster than they had planned on.
1: Yeah,
2: Over, Over a second faster.
1: Mm-hmm. you clearly impressed and then obviously you didn't end up in formula one um the line that was spun was that they wanted an italian driver so off you went again um back to the states and i
2: wasn't upset i knew and i knew bernie uh, i uh, he had to have it funded and i didn't come in with any funding from america or Any other multinational uh, country, Uh, so, uh, but I wasn't upset, and I knew Bernie, uh, if he could have done it, he would
1: have. And it's nice that you've kept that relationship with Bernie. So obviously, you know, one of the good guys. Um, Skipping forward then into into the NASCAR days, uh, deep south, redneck territory, redneck sport, tough tough time. I think it's fair to say
2: they. They weren't ready for Willie T. Ribs down there, and the, the in the South, uh, most African Americans down there were conditioned to stay in their place. You don't you don't speak up, you you look down, you don't look eye to eye, and and you definitely don't say nothing. All right. Well, I didn't come from there. First of all, I didn't come from uh, a a poor or I didn't come from a background where I was um, a po- poverty background. No.
1: And, and you didn't have a history of saying
2: nothing. <laughs> right, exactly, right. I didn't come from poverty, where, and, and, and unfortunately most African-Americans there came from poverty, right, very – and I didn't. Uh, I didn't uh, – as a matter of fact, one – uh, mechanic, I think it was Junie Dunlap. He's an old, old owner and mechanic. He was seventy-five years old. He says to me, "When I got down there, he says Willie, you know, you got to remember that most of these drivers here and mechanics and team owners, they never, they never been around any, any colored folks in their life." And I said, "Yeah, I understand how they feel because, mm-hmm. nor was I." <laughs> and he he just stared at me I, I, I said i grew up in san Jose, california 0.2 percent black or people of color 0.2 and i was the only black kid in my class all through my grade year the only one so mm. what was i to do how was i i i, I only know one place um um, when I was down there, they there was some there was some uh, words said. No, you know, I mean, the first thing I noticed is that guys were spitting around me, spitting. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, oh. and um, they knew my reputation as a as a as a fighter, so I didn't get not one of them used the N word to my face. I just. Had to walk around spit, and uh, and 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 there was some of the fans weren't were were pretty nasty.
0: Well, the, the thing that is worrying now is that you know if you look at NASCAR today and, and the news just out that they're finally banning the Confederate state flag and and that has been met with a lot of criticism as well on social media through huge NASCAR fans. So there is still that that level of, of, you know, discrimination there. How do, you, how do you look at, you know, NASCAR in particular is quite a, a well-known Southern American sport as well. How do you look at it now compared to what you were dealing with then? Not much has changed.
2: Yeah. I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you why. First of all, if George Floyd hadn't been murdered and he was still alive today, would those flags come down? those flags would still be up. No one would have ever mentioned it. Mm. So that was being reactive, not proactive. Those flags should have been down 30 years ago. Okay. And I dared a lot of people, and I challenged NASCAR and some of its uh, peers. If you're so, uh, so uh, strong about your beliefs in the First Amendment then hang up the swastika. Put that out on the infield and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah. You you believe in the First Amendment? Okay. Fly the fly the Nazi flag in the infield and see how that will go. Mm-hmm. They would they didn't know. They would never do that. Never. So uh, it's it's come down, but as my grandpa used to say, when a man takes off his shirt, he's still the same man. What's got to change is their heart. Not whether they take take a flag down. And right now, there's a lot of upset fans. It's, I'm reading about it right now. They're mad. They're going to boycott NASCAR because their Confederate flag uh, They can't fly their Confederate flag. So what's what's what really?
0: Yeah, they can't uh, go to any of the races anyway at the moment. So there's uh, nothing to be bought.
1: Well, good. I mean, it just it just shows though, doesn't it, that like you say, Willie. has anything really changed? And it does, you know. When you put it like that, it, it does feel like very much a, a reactive process rather than proactive, as you say. And we'll talk. We'll touch on this a little bit more, I'm sure, a little later. Um, I want to skip over um, a few years. We'll let people again see, see the documentary um, to catch up on on the mid to late '80s. I want to skip forward um, towards your your second go at Indy, and uh, we're heading towards the 90s now. Derek Walker um, comes, comes around. You have a bit of budget. You can get yourself into the month of May. Tell us about this this month of May and the experience leading up to qualifying for the Indy 500, and then that incredible moment, which is really got me in the documentary when you're driving down the pit lane you've made it through and it's that real you're cheering and everyone's going yes yeah, it's amazing and that was the moment in the documentary that made me go it's oh, sweet jesus i can't take this anymore talk us through that month of may
2: in the in the film when people see the film every year was something so they're it's going to blow yeah. their mind it's extraordinary but yeah so um I get a call from Bill Cosby, just like I got a call from Paul Newman. And he says, what do you want to do? And so I told him what I wanted to do. So 91, uh, Derek Walker, the Porsche IndyCar team was over. Porsche was pulling out of IndyCar. Uh, Derek had actually left Penske racing. He was running Roger Penske's team when Rick Mears was there and Bobby Unser and and uh, Porsche hired him. Well, Porsche only stayed on for a few years, and then they pulled the plug. So Derek was without a gig. So I found that out. I called Bill and I said, "Hey, there's a guy named Derek Walker, and he's a badass, and and he could do the job for us." So he said, "Get him." That's all Bill said. Get it by. He would say, "He would say, get it by." and then hang up, right? And <clears throat> so I met Derek Walker at Sebring in February, uh, not Sebring, Daytona, the Daytona 24-hour, mm-hmm. February of 1991. And I said, um, I'd like to do uh, discuss doing Indy 500. Bill Cosby will support it. And he wants us, meaning you and I, to fly to Las Vegas in two days to meet him, just like that. And Walker just sort of stared at me like a deer in headlights, like, is this real? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, cause I walked right up to him and we already knew each other and I told him, I said, Bill is going to do this and he wants us in Vegas in two days. And so Walker's okay, okay. So we met in Vegas We went to the Bill, Bill was doing a show, I think at the Vegas Hilton, I think at the time. And um, we got to his dressing room right after his last show, which was, oh, about midnight, midnight. And we sit in the dressing room and Bill instantly liked Derek. And so this is what I'm gonna do. Okay, all right, well then tell me, do you think we could do a bunch of chain of repair shops too? And, and, you know, Bill went right. He, he had already, how much is going to cut? Okay, no problem. And uh, I'll, I'll get you the money next week. Literally two days after, and we didn't leave his dressing room till 3am. We were in his dressing room till three. We shook hands. Uh, and Cosby said, don't talk to anybody but me. I don't want you to talk to my lawyer, my agent, anything. I'm going to send you the money from my bank account. How many people do that? (laughs) They don't. No. Okay. Nobody does that. So um, I don't think Derek believed him. I get a call on Tuesday. This show was Sunday night. I get a call on Tuesday and it's Walker on the phone. He says, uh, I have the money. I said, yeah, I know. That's what he said he was going to do. He said, no one does that. <laughs> he said, no one sends the money in two days. He says, usually they get around to sending it. He said, I've never dealt with it. Cosby, despite what it, what's happened, yeah. he was the most honest man. When he said he was going to do something, he did it, and he did it right then, and usually more. So we got the money, we go to Indy. We we had a car that was an old, old, old year-old car, and we had to, you know, dust it off and get it right. And Tim Wardrop from England was my engineer, and I owe Cosby and Wardrop uh, everything that happened in '91 and that put me in the Indy 500 wardrobe was just, he looked, he reminded me of Ringo star, the Beatles actually, he's a little bit more attractive, but he had, he, he always wore those Ringo star glasses. Right. Yeah. And, and he had, uh, you know, sometimes he'd be smoking a cigarette. And he was very calm, William, and he had already won Indy as an engineer two times. And, uh, um, yeah, you know, with Ari Leondyke. So, um, it, it was just the best, uh, and we didn't have much. I mean, we were blowing up engines because, uh, uh, Buick had a bunch of, well, for my engine, they had some bad rod bolts and they were snapping. And finally we got a good engine with a little pressure, uh, uh on Buick to, uh, qualify with, but wardrobe was just he was so smart, and he was just easy to work with uh It was him and bill and john waters uh and Laurie garrish there were some great guys there was only a handful of us, but they were all super uh talented
1: yeah yeah and a big a big underdog story because you know you 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 were uh, despite, in despite the money that you got um from uh from bill. You were still on a shoestring budget. I mean, this was what three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which I think they say in the documentary that you, you know you spend that before you even turn up at the track. Um, so, so to qualify, it makes it even more incredible that you got through that, qualified on such a shoestring budget in a one-year-old car with a with a skeleton team. It must have been an unreal feeling when you pulled into that pit well, lane. I mean, it wasn't even
2: a shoestring. I mean, this is, this was a thread, <laughs> uh, and and it was that would. It, that made it real satisfying. That made you know to you know, if you go there in Roger Penske's team, all right, well, you're, you, there's no a whole lot of pressure. Yeah. you got everything on top of everything, right to do it. and then in those days, to qualify for the any500, there's 75 guys showing up for 33 spots. It was real hard. It was hard. And, and when it was over, because you're there for a month, and when you're done, you, you, it, it changes you, because you really see, you really get a chance to look inside yourself. Yeah, yeah. Now, Willie, it would be a miss of us not
1: to uh, get your take on uh, modern-day motorsport. Do you still watch Formula One? Uh, are, you,
2: are you a fan? Because I, well, I'm a friend of Lewis's, first of all. I'm, I'm, I'm his supporter. I support him. I support the stand that he's taken right now. Yeah, and it's, it's a from from a human rights position. There's not many men that do that, especially at the highest level. Why? Because they're worrying about money, what they'll lose, the, the commercial side uh, uh, of their career. And he's and I was the same way. That's not what it's about. We're human beings, and and I watch Formula One because of him. And 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 his dad and I, Anthony, are good friends. I'm his guest when I come to to when he comes to uh, Texas every year for the United States Grand Prix. And he's just a good kid, okay. And he's not a kid; he's a man, mm. but he's old enough to be my son. All right. So, uh, or young enough to be my son. So, uh, I, I, um, I support him, and I got his back. And, um, and uh, and and he's doing the, he's doing the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, he even called out the other uh, mm-hmm.
0: F1 racing drivers actively on on his socials, saying, "You're not speaking up. I can see you. I'm the only one that's talking here. I'm the only uh, person of color in." the Formula 1 field I shouldn't be on my own talking about this and and thankfully others did speak up but then again to hark back to what we were talking about with NASCAR and the Confederate flag it very much seems like Reactive. it's uh, responsive and a PR spin and not very much uh, you, know, you know something who created that's
2: that? Who? Lewis created all of that yeah. it went from Lewis to the other uh, grand prix drivers to NASCAR they they all watched Lewis so they all jumped on Lewis's bandwagon. Mm. It started with Lewis, and then it went to NASCAR. So I'm there. Lewis gets the credit for that. And he's taken a lot of heat over it. But I got, I, look, you know, um, Bernie supports him, right? Ross Braun
0: has come out and actually said Formula One is fully behind him as well.
2: I love Ross Braun. I've known him forever. And there's a few men that I'll go to blows for. In a pub. Ross mm. But I suppose the question is, it
0: is great that all this is happening, that you know, changes are being made, whether they're responsive or not, perhaps. But I suppose the question is how do we how do how do we keep this going? Because is there a danger that it's just going to, once the season starts, it's just going to fall off, fall off the face of the earth and people go back to normal again? It doesn't seem like that in terms of the atmosphere. But, you know, we have had things like this before, where the Black Lives Matter movement has been at the forefront of um, certainly the UK tabloids. But then, it's, then, it, then it falls away again. How do we make sure, you know, particularly in motorsport, it, it stays as an issue that we try and solve? Is that question even answerable?
2: Well, you can't. Once that momentum starts Mm. and the momentum has started, you have to keep the momentum going. Okay. Ross has already uh, stepped up and says, okay, we are going to continue. And let's face it. Formula One is the NFL of auto racing. It is the big league. NASCAR is not close to uh, Formula One in terms of magnitude, nor is IndyCar. Formula One is on another planet. And they just so happen to have a driver of color that is a world champion, one of the greatest ever to walk the planet. Right. Yeah. Formula One can can. And all because of Ron Dennis. Ron Dennis was uh, is is the diversity king for Formula One. He groomed uh, Lewis Hamilton. Ron Dennis should uh, be knighted for that. I mean, he should be bowing in front of the Queen for that. And so should Lewis. They should be side by side. If I was the Queen, I'd march Ron and Lewis and Bernie, all three of them in. Mm. There is a
0: huge, there is a huge debate every year that Lewis Hamilton hasn't been honoured by the Queen every year. You know, other sportsmen and athletes get honoured, and yet he is always overlooked. And it brings before in years gone by the question has never been uh, the you know of race has never quite come up properly. It's always something that people have tended to skip over. But I think that is now a question that people ask. You know, is that is 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 that racism inherent that we are just you know he's not being honoured because of the color of his skin? Yet he is the. You know, he's probably the greatest motorsport driver uh, to ever in
1: live. History.
2: Ever, in, in history.
1: yeah, and um, it, it does feel like that this time around because these things come and go, don't they? You know, there'll be something that that brings race into the public eye for a while, then it dies, then it comes back. And this one feels like, for in my lifetime anyway, the first time that I've experienced such conversation around it, like all my friends are talking about it, um, everyone on the news is talking about it, and it's the first time I feel like people are sort of looking inside themselves and really thinking about the way they perceive things and not just going, oh, I'm, I'm not racist. It's fine. Yeah, what are you talking about? They're actually going deep inside themselves and taking, a, taking the time to think, actually, hang on a minute, how, how do I react to race? And that sort of feels like a bit of a sea change to me. And it's never, I've never felt it like it is now. And I don't know whether it's the same feeling you're getting over in the States, but certainly over here, that's the feeling I get. People are really searching within themselves this time.
2: Well, and that's the only way it's going to go. Uh, continue. It's it's momentum. Okay, people are seeing it now. The whole world is seeing it. We uh, communication has never been bigger and better worldwide than it is now. We all know what to do. It's really not rocket science. And just do it. Okay. There's been there's been inequities over a hundred. Uh, hundreds of years. Hey, eh? let's make the, uh, adjustments to those inequities, and not be afraid to make a change. Mm. And and you got to you got and the young kids, young young men your age. I mean, you you young you guys are young. Well, he's young. You? Harry's young. Um, me, not so much. Well, when you get sixty five, <laughs> uh, like Willie T, you'll you'll say it. And, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's your, uh, it, it's your turn. It's you, you, it's your turn. It's your generation's turn to run the ball or drive the car. And, uh, you know, there, it's great because there are older generations like say Ron Dennis, all right. And like Bernie and like Ross Braun that see it, they know it's gotta be done. All right, and they're going to
0: endorse it. And I think as well, the timing of of Uppity it, it couldn't have come at a better time, almost as well. So hopefully, that plus the amount of the amount of influential sportsmen, not just Lewis Hamilton, but people across the across the board in sports as well, uh, and in every other aspect of life, uh, that exactly as you say, momentum yeah. is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it feels almost a bit uh, a bit weird then cutting to a different type of subject, but. On on the subject line of modern-day motorsports and, and uh, things you watch and enjoy and actively listen to, do you know much about Formula E? That's a new championship and all electric. What do you think of this sort of new modern-day technology world
2: of racing? You know, when I first heard about it, I thought it was the, the name of a vibrator. <laughs> no, I, no, literally, Formula <laughs> E and... and, and, and because I thought, okay, no, they, they couldn't be serious. Right? Can I give? Hang on, and, uh, round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, sound is everything. Okay, gentlemen, I, I, and I'm going to be uh, really graphic. Okay,
1: I, when Bernie, we're not talking about the vibrator anymore, are we? We've we've no, moved no, on not to not the motorsport, the
2: vibrator, right? Good. But <laughs> I got to tell you, you know, uh, I was asked. A long time ago, um, what did I do as a hobby? Well, I shoot, I, my, my son, Theo's one of the top shooters in the world, comes to England every year and shoots with George Digweed, who is the greatest shooter in the planet and he's from England. And so um, they asked me, my, why didn't I like golf? I said, well, it was too quiet. I said, I like anything that makes noise. Mm. It could be a race car. That could be a shotgun. That could be a woman. Okay, it's got to make noise, <laughs> right? Okay, that, that, they got to put some sound to that electric car. <laughs> yes, okay.
1: I've been saying this.
2: Okay, right, right. Because, you know, um, you, people like, and there's been complaints that Formula One cars today are not now. Too
1: quiet, yeah. Mm.
2: Right? So now we're going to get out there with a the sewing machine, you know, I, you know, I know it's, you know, it's clean and, you know, it, it, you know, you, you don't have to, hold, you know, worry about your eyes burning or, or, or the smell, but it's just, we got to do something about the sound. Yeah, yeah. I'm totally, <laughs> totally with you. You know, my, my wife, um, she was actually sewing and she doesn't sew very often, but she was sewing and I heard it. And I thought, damn, I said, that's formal E right there. <laughs> <laughs> and and I that thought, was the, that was a very actually that was a spot on impression. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was like, OK, um, it's just not going to draw uh, a big crowd.
0: Um, what about you know, you mentioned it, you, your son is one of, one of the top shooters. Were there never was there any interest in getting your kids involved
2: in motorsport? You know, motorsports become so difficult for a young, young man now. Back in the days when I was racing, there was lots of Andrettis. There was lots of hunters. Uh, You know, the, even Formula One, you had Villeneuve, Villeneuve. And and then you had Graham Hill and Damon Hill. Ross Damon and I are really good friends, right? Um, you don't see it anymore because mm. of the difficulty of bringing them up, bringing them up the ladder and the cost. And, you know, I shooting was my hobby, clay shooting. And Theo went out with me as a kid and pushed the buttons. And then as soon as he was big enough to hold a shotgun in his shoulder, he started shooting and he, he got, you know, and shooting is like golf. It's very technical, right? Especially pro shooters, right? And he picked it up right away and he made a career out of it. And he's, you know, traveling, getting paid and he's traveling around the world and that was the reason I came back to England a few years ago in the first place. Yeah. Because he was shooting at EJ Churchill in the world championship. at Amazing. Uh, In High Wycombe.
0: And to, as you say, to get paid for doing a sport you love and you're good at, that must make That's all the difference. The dream. When you see so many young motorsport you know, drivers coming up through the field, and they're you know they're paying to be there, they're not making a single cent. I think I even saw a news story, although I take it with a bit, pinch of salt. But Jean Alessi, his he had to sell one of his old Ferrari F1s yeah, yeah, to fund. Yeah. His son's Formula 2 campaign. And you just think, well, if you think for a start, you're lucky to have a Formula 1 car to sell. But also, second off, the fact that he's having to do that is just, you know, it just shows the system is completely flawed. Yeah, it's
2: changed. It's changed uh, dramatically. Mm. And, um, you know, but um, we'll see. We'll see with everything that's happened with this pandemic if there's going to be an adjustment. If there's going to be an
0: adjustment in the sport, mm. I mean, there already is on you know in the calendar front and more packed races, reverse grids, perhaps in Formula One as well. So I think everything's up up for up for grabs these days. Um, we've got um, there's
1: there's a there's a couple of questions. Well, there's actually three questions that we usually ask um, our guests at the end of a podcast. This this is part of our new series, um, shining a light on on certain individuals in the sport. And we weren't actually going to ask these questions, but Harry, I think we should ask two of them. If you're cool with yeah. that, um, I, th- I think we should ask, um, first of all, what's got you excited at the moment? What are you excited about? What's happening in, in your life that's got you pumped?
2: Well, we, you know, the, the film is done, Uppity, and uh, a a great producer saw it by the name of Brian Koppelman. And he, he, he does the show Billions on Showtime. Yeah. He saw Uppity. And he's doing a pilot right now for a four-year series spin-off. Uppity. Wow, amazing! The producer will be Don Cheadle. Fantastic! So that's,
0: that's in the works right now. Very exciting! Wow, that's going to be an oh! I can't wait to see that when that and, comes out. And
2: and 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 you know the 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 doc, the doc is straight business. Four years, eight episodes a season you know, it's going to be some salacious stuff in there. I mean, there's the real, I mean, the behind the scenes, the words that were used, what? the things that happened, the parties, James Hunt, for example. I oh, mean, brilliant. You know, and, and James Hunt was one of my heroes. I mean, the cat was just all, he was, he, he just had personality. Mm. And, and uh, he was dancing, on a table in Las Vegas one night. Uh, it was a Paul Ankles, I think it was a, when they were doing the Formula One race in they might've been 83, 84, and, no 82, 81 or 82. I'm dancing and I see Hunt up on the table. He'd already retired. He was up on the table dancing in the disco, in the nightclub and a guy named Hogan, he ran Marlboro, uh, Marlborough England right John Hogan was named they were both on the table dancing <laughs> Hogan had his shirt on so you're gonna the, the scenes the scenes for uh the the show the series it's gonna be
0: well, so I'm assuming someone's gonna be playing you do you get a say in who that
2: is they're gonna we they gonna have a list for me. That's, That's so exciting. Cool. And
0: actually, we had we had James Hunt's son, Freddie Hunt, Freddie. on the show a few weeks back, and he is the spitting image. It's freaky. we actually we accidentally Tim accidentally called him James. I did. He's just they he's look the, the same. same kind of mannerisms and the way he talks and his outlook on life. It's just it's just incredible. Very different character though. Very different character. Um, I'm assuming the final question is is the last one that you wanna ask. Yep. So uh Willie T. ribs ribs. Uh, we we asked this to to all of our guests. What are you scared
2: of? I would say not succeeding. You know, I've I've never been afraid of uh, death. I would I would definitely in the wrong profession for that, right? So I never worried about that. Um, but not accomplishing goals that that I set for me
0: a brilliant way to end the show Willie T. Riff, we could talk to you for hours I think yeah. your story is incredible uh, we touched on a few things there but of course uh, they're all uh, that and more is all in the, in the documentary Upper T which is on Netflix you can also uh, uh, buy the DVD and have a, a search it online it's everywhere the Willie T. Riff story it is fascinating Willie thank you so much for coming on the Motormouth podcast we're going to do it again babe Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth Podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official, and on Facebook just search Motormouth you can download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV create your own social profile and interact with others and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy don't forget to like subscribe and review and until next time you've been listening to the Motormouth podcast we here at Motormouth are a small independent team since starting this podcast just over a year ago we're reaching over 15,000 of you across 30 countries around the world and we want to bring the biggest Names in motorsport to you. Find out about their lives and careers and have a chat about whatever is going on in the motorsport world. We are determined to carry on producing these episodes, however, they do come at a cost from securing guests to equipment and editing software and expanding the podcast and app. That's why we've set up a Patreon page where you can help us to carry on doing what we do. There are three levels at which you can contribute, starting from £5 a month to £10 or £20. Each tier allows you slightly different levels of access. Depending on which one you choose, you can enjoy early access to podcast episodes, exclusive member benefits, merchandise, shout-outs, and your chance to feature on one of our shows. Any support you can give us is massively appreciated and will help us grow and continue to bring cool content to race fans all over the world.